their paths crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you would ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maud. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This is Bonnie and Maud, the film podcast, with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. You are listening to Bonnie and Maud. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Ksenia Yarosh. How's it going, Ksenia? Pretty good. Um, we haven't put up episodes in a little while. Yeah, uh, we're sorry about that, guys. We've kind of like been kind of quiet, kind of mysterious. <laughs> um, we've missed you. We hope you've missed and us. And each other. And each other. I know I haven't seen you in a while. I think the listeners probably know why. We, we talked about your pregnancy on the show a little bit. Yes, I'm I'm happy uh, to mention that Tatum Ripley uh, was born July 24th, and he's very healthy and happy and has even been to a couple movies with me at this point. What was Tatum's first movie? Uh, <laughs> Pawn Sacrifice. What is that? <laughs> um, it's about Bobby Fischer, and it was a totally okay movie, but it was amazing because I was out of the house. It's setting his expectations medium Mm -hmm. for the future of film in his life right (laughs) like you don't want to start off with like star wars or the godfather (laughs) or the room because then it's just like where do you even go from there Mm -hmm. and it was a bilingual film so it had uh russian and english in it which is appropriate because i'm hoping i can teach him both languages can we take a minute listeners and Ksenia mm-hmm. as a collective and just appreciate the name that this child has <laughs> please Tatum Ripley yeah Tatum is very much a tribute to Paper Moon which is one of my favorite films um, and Ripley I think you can guess where that comes from I love that you named him after like two of the baddest ladies of cinema and like what a no tribute could be better they're also just very musical, beautiful names. They I, are. I wanted him to feel empowered, but I there's also beauty there. Yeah. Oh, and he's such a little cute potato. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, so I also started a new job that has taken me away from being able to spend as much time on side projects these days. So we both have, have had a lot going on in our lives lately. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess this is the time that we should probably make this announcement this will be the final podcast episode of bonnie and Maud. two-part episode by the way because we are bringing you two really exciting things that we've had in uh our arsenal for a while we've been waiting for the right moment to share with you but yes these are our final two episodes for now we will continue to do other projects, um, so definitely visit bonnieandmaud.com to see what Eleanor and I are up to mm-hmm. separately and together. Um, and follow us on Twitter at Bonnie and Maud. Absolutely. Um, you can even still email to us. The email will remain active, so bonnieandmaud at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail. Don't remember the phone number. Look <laughs> on the website. It's um, on there. It's on there. Uh, no, it, it's... Oh. It's all this three over three years and we're just like, (laughs) what the fuck is this phone number? Yeah. So we decided that, you know, the Bonnie and Maude empire shall continue. But the podcast is not necessarily the right medium for us right now. 
So, you know, look out in the future for film screenings or live shows. We, like, have a lot of ideas of, like, cool movie-related stuff to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we still love film. Oh, my God. And um, each other. <laughs> <laughs> so the conversation will continue, but the podcast... Mm, we'll be quiet for the moment. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and we... we really enjoyed everything we have heard from you uh, we appreciate our listeners very much um i don't know i'm rambling <laughs> that's okay so let's talk a little bit about what these final two episodes contain mm-hmm. in two parts we're bringing you interviews that we did with two really incredible filmmakers so in this episode uh, you'll hear from Signa Bauman and in part two which you can listen to right now you can hear our interview with Gillian Robespierre the director um, and writer, co-writer mm-hmm. of Obvious Childs. That was a recording that was made at our last live event called Pregnant Pause. Mm-hmm. It happened in uh, in June 2015 at the Bell House in Brooklyn. But we'll talk about that more in part two. For now, uh, let's talk about Signa Bauman. She's a really fascinating Latvian, though living in the U.S., uh, filmmaker and animator. I feel like the best way to introduce you guys to like a tiny taste of her work is to play for you what my first experience of her work was. Uh, And it sounded like this. So you know how guys are always obsessed um, with dicks, you know, they say big dick is better than small. You know, when I was younger, I was really, really scared of big dicks. I just like they scared shit out of me. Okay, so that was from Teat Beat of Sex, um, a series of animated short films that Signa made that uh, very frankly discuss sex uh, from a perspective that could only be a woman's and could only be Mm -hmm. Signa's. And I love them so much. Well, lest you think she's only obsessed with sex, she is also obsessed with death. Yes. I will say that uh, Teat Beat, the whole series is on YouTube, so you should go watch them right now. But her first animated feature which came out this year 2015 uh is called rocks in my pockets and is about her history of depression and sort of her actually her family's history of depression told through animation which is sort of surprising when you first think about but um also makes perfect sense as you'll hear in our conversation yeah, I actually think that um, if you can, um, go over to uh, her website, which is rocksinmypocketsmovie.com and check out the trailer just to see what this film looks like. It's it's a mix of hand-drawn animation and paper mache stop motion. Um, I love the magical realism of it because she really wanted to capture the experience that she felt and that a lot of the women in her family felt of living with mental illness and depression. And a lot of that is told through metaphors, being crushed under the weight of the world and, you know, feeling anxiety. She just really captures it in in such an evocative way through uh, this animation. And if you enjoy the trailer, you can actually purchase the film directly from her on that website as well, rocksinmypocketsmovie.com. So uh, maybe we should just listen to, to set it up, a tiny bit of the trailer where she kind of lays out the tone of the film. You can kind of hear the stream of consciousness narration that she does with um, this uh, kind of moody soundtrack under it. So let's take a listen to that right now. This is a story about five women of my family and our quest for sanity. My grandmother Anna, a lively spirit, then a mother of eight. 
and my cousins, Miranda, an aspiring artist, Linda, an ambitious student, Irbe, a quiet music teacher, and me, I look at my family and ask, can I escape my destiny? So we recorded this conversation sitting around my kitchen table, sipping tea. Signa was really, really open and honest and almost kind of bemused as she discussed these things with us. And, you know, we wanted to give you guys a heads up that uh, suicide, mental illness, depression are the subjects covered in this interview um, in case that changes your feelings going forward and listening. Obviously, if you relate to these feelings um, or need some support or if you know someone who's suffering uh, from mental illness um, or is showing sides of suicidal tendencies, um, we're going to refer to some phone lines you can contact um, in the notes for the show. We tried to do our best to be sensitive in our conversation, but obviously sometimes it's easier to laugh when you're dealing with the most challenging of topics. And laughing because Signa maintains that with rocks in my pockets, she was initially trying to make a comedy. So we actually, we start off the interview by asking her about that. Um, So here, take a listen. Why was it important to you to make a film about depression, but also to make it funny? Oh, I don't know. I mean, why I made film, why I make films at all, you know, it's, um, form of communication or form like or the way how I express my point of view and uh, why my point of view is you know has value I don't know you know it's for you to decide but uh, I guess there's a need in me to express the point of view but uh, particularly this project came to life because I always make or mostly make projects based on what bothers me at that moment the most, you know, like uh, sex bothers me because I think about sex every nine seconds. And it's, it's. I, I mean, I wouldn't say it bothers me, but it does bother me because let's say I think about sex right now sitting with you guys and there's mm-hmm. nothing I can do about it, right? So, um, so that, that's kind of bothersome. So when I was thinking what would be my next project, I thought what is bothering me at the moment. And I thought there's this like, you know, tides of the depression of the pain and all this suffering. And I thought if it bothers me, I should make a film about it. So I just started lightheartedly and I thought it would be high end comedy about me thinking about how I would not kill myself. Cause that's, I think it's really, really funny. Uh, when you think about it, I find it kind of interesting thought process. So I started to write this thing down and I thought it was very hilarious, but then you run out of material and then like, meaning, you know, you're like writing this and you're like, well, this is not a story for feature film. This is just like tidbit of sexual episodes of funny, absurd thoughts. And so then I said, well, let me write about my family a little bit. Mm -hmm. And once I started to write about the family, then it just like story took off and I didn't stop till I finished. And then all this material, that I wrote earlier had to go because mm-hmm. uh, it was not sitting there. What's interesting to me about Rocks in My Pockets is it's not just about your family. It's about five women in your background, starting with your grandmother and then going to some of your cousins um, and how seemingly their depression also interwove with them being female. 
either just like feeling oppressed by being a mother, a wife, not achieving very much in terms of career. I mean, how conscious were you of the fact that this is like a very woman centric story when you were working on it? I don't really separate myself uh, from humanity, (laughs) meaning I don't say I'm a woman, so I'm different from everybody else. You know, it's, I think that uh, depression afflicts everybody, you know, and, Absolutely. and uh, it's just uh, in my family, the story is mainly around women. I mean, there are men who get depressed in my family as well, but they mm-hmm. don't not to the extreme how women mm-hmm. get depressed. And uh, so women, I feel where it's, and I didn't really ask this question from the feminist point of view, like why exactly women were suffering mm-hmm. from this particular affliction to this particular degree. Mm-hmm. But once you write the story, it becomes very, very clear, mm-hmm. like why. And I felt that upper oppression of society's expectations and and a man's expectations for marriage, you know, and even your own expectations is like, like I don't, you may believe certain things, and and then all of a sudden, I don't know, you just you feel I feel trapped, like mm-hmm. I feel trapped. I'm I'm sure the. Uh, a lot of women feel trapped sometimes because of they they made choices based on what society what they think society expects from them. Mm-hmm. She was breastfeeding her first child soon after her attempted suicide, which was written off as postpartum depression. Mental illness was considered a failing of one's will, a sign of weak character, and thus a sin. Postpartum depression, on the other hand was a temporary lapse of one's character, explained by a hormonal disbalance, and thus more acceptable. You know, in Estonia, they say, when you don't drink and you don't smoke, they say, what, you want to die healthy? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, how are you going to live your life without, like, making only safe choices, right? It's just going to be boring life, you know? Mm -hmm. You have to spice it up with some suffering, you know? (laughs) So you grew up in Latvia, spent some time in Moscow also, and then moved to New York about 20 years ago? Yes. Have you noticed uh, any market cultural difference between the way that, um, you know, where you grew up approached sex and death and, you know, moving to New York and how New York over the last 20 years, or I guess America has approached those topics? Can we also note that you're like in New York under the genius visa? What, what is it called? It's oh, like- uh, special ability, uh, hold on, hold on. Special ability alien. Yeah, Specialty? I love that phrase. No, special ability alien. Special ability alien. I've never heard of that. That's yes. amazing. Yes, that was a really cool visa. I mean, green card, yeah. Yeah. I was like, yes. <laughs> now awesome. I know I'm alien with special abilities. <laughs> I feel like that's a badge of honor. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um. So the question was, Oh, differences um, uh, yeah. between Latvian yeah. uh, approach to sex and death versus America. Sex and death, I mean, are two separate things. I mean, maybe they're the same thing in French, right? <laughs> Le petit, uh, yeah. petit mort. Yeah. yeah. But um, in Latvia, when, when I was growing up, Latvia, the death was like so near, right? And that was like part of everything that happened. And you looked death straight in the fucking face. And uh, uh, there was, I was also singing in this Latvian uh, uh, folk song, um, 
uh, folk song a group called Skandiniki that was uh, reenacting these old rituals, and there are like rituals of the of the wedding, which is a, in for ancient Latvians it's a very sad occasion. People were crying at weddings. It was horrible. It was tragic, and the and the funerals, which was a joyful occasion, and people were dancing and singing and you know huh. having good time. I don't know, that's like a ancient traditions. And one of the things that they did at funerals, the ancient Latvians, which we were reenacting, they would take the corpse and dance as that corpse. Really? Wow. Yeah, through the rooms. Oh my God. But then, uh, and then wow. they would put it back in earth, put it into the earth, and they say, you know, like it's, it's like part of right. It's, that's what happens. And then, uh, and then the Latvians, the, the people who live in the, in the, in the village, they would, um, go with a special song. They would go everywhere where this dead person walked and they would stomp out his traces of his. They would just like sing the song and like stomp it out. So that was, there was the, that kind of, um, when in Latvia, there's this death thing and life thing and sex thing, which is like in a summer solstice, for example, you really, you really wanted to have sex <laughs> because it just was so hot. I mean, meaning so hot and not in a weather wise, but it was like everything was calling for it because you just survived this brutal winter. Uh-huh. And uh, like you had that craving of like that feeling alive. And you were so grateful that, uh, you know, you just fuck the shit out of yourself. You just want to take your clothes off. And then I grew up as the rabbits that uh, my, was my task to feed. And then and my dad would slaughter them and skin them. And so we were eating these rabbits and I would knew them personally. And uh, Is and, that why there are so many rabbits in your cartoons? I don't know. I, That's I would just don't, don't, thing. Just maybe probably I ate too many rabbits. I don't know. There's <laughs> the rabbit inside me trying to communicate his dead life through me. I don't know. So you know where your meat comes from, right? And I feel when I came here, there are two things that I was really appalled by. First, in 1995, when I came here, women had these like rules, like they wouldn't sleep with guys on the first date. For me, it was like, I met the guy and 15 minutes later we banged. But are you, are you referring like specifically to New York or like New York? America? I don't know. I, that's all I knew. I was like, <laughs> I arrived and then these guys tried to sleep with me and I slept with them and I didn't see what was wrong. And it turned out that American women don't do that. And they said <laughs> they're really hard to get. And then later on, of course, when uh, in the late 90s, when uh, Sex and the City missing. came out, mm-hmm. it changed how women behave. But, you know, it's I find it very ironic because women, the Sex and the City was written by gay men. Yeah. And so they imposed <laughs> the behavior on women and then women found it cool, which is really cool. I mean, I, I'm all for that, but it was like funny that they didn't think for themselves. They just uh, had to be told by television how to behave, you know? So anyway, so that I found really strange. And mm-hmm. I found also very strange that Americans are, they're so afraid or I found them so afraid of looking uh, right through in the eye of their meat, meaning mm-hmm. that uh, the meat had to be transformed into something that you would never recognize as mm-hmm. an animal. Yes. <laughs> like chicken nuggets shaped like dinosaurs. Or whatever. I don't <laughs> even know what they look like. I mean, they don't look like anything. So I found it odd that Americans really don't like to acknowledge death mm-hmm. in a way like, uh, I mean, like, for example, I myself, I don't like to acknowledge my own death. I, I think it's appalling. But like, you know, the, the death exists, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just... 
I mean, it's horrifying, but that's kind of part of the thrill to be alive. Sure. Yeah. You mentioned rabbits, which reminds me of Anna, um, your grandmother who kicks off rocks in my pockets. And I, you know, I was originally curious whether you started out this telling the story by searching for her story, but how, so how did that play in sort of the mystery of how she died and piecing together her life? How did that fit in with telling the story of rocks? When I started to write about the family, because we had all these events in the family, I can't even describe all of them. I just took the five, the most, you know, extreme cases or the most bright cases, uh, because there's more stories. Because I wanted to kind of pinpoint or like tell the audience where these weird thoughts come from. And I thought, well, I just go as far as I know to go because I only know my grandmother. I don't know anything beyond that. So I started to write her story down. And it's like the story has been given to me over many years, like just like little dots. And so then I was connecting the dots in my mind. A few years before I started to write the story, I was asking, because all this, all, all my life, I was more relating, relating to my grandfather, who is entrepreneur, entrepreneur. And I thought, Oh, I am entrepreneur. I am adventurous. I am this and I'm that. That's mm -hmm. my grandfather. And then when I was getting older, I was like, wait, I think that. Oh, that it's not, there is something in the grandmother. And so I invested more time, like kind of asking questions and trying to get sense of her. Mm -hmm. Well, there's the beautiful scene in Rocks where they say, oh, Anna was an artist, but she had to carry 40 pails of water up a hill every day and take care of eight children and take care of four, four cows and horses and kill rabbits every day. So she had this artistic soul and this artistic vision, but she didn't have time to, you know, put paint to canvas and make art. And this is coming at this moment in the film where the character of you, is that is that accurate? The character of you is wondering whether she should move to America and become an artist. And uh, I loved the voices in the head. What Anna was not able to do, I was determined to at least try. The world around me threw a tremendous resistance to my plan. You can't be an artist. Artists drink and die at age 28 from liver failure. You can't be an artist. Women artists are all whores. You don't have an arts education, and it's too late to get one now. An artist is not a serious occupation. Well... What was my alternative? The madhouse? Suicide? Pharmaceuticals? Standing on the razor-thin line between madness and sanity, I slowly started to move to where I wanted to be. We all have the voices that tell us um, that our creative pursuits aren't worth it. And I loved just the uncovering that, yes, Anna was an artist, even if she didn't create art she had that part of her life yeah, yeah the sensibility yeah i mean in a different life in different times she would have could have been and probably she could have been even you know in her time but she made the choice early on you know when she's barely 20 she meets this guy and before you know there are eight children you know so it's like you can't fall in love 
you know, you can't. If you want to achieve something, you can't fall in love because then you have these responsibilities that kill all your dreams. <laughs> Look at you. Um, oh my God. Hi, respond. As, as a pregnant married person who collaborates with her partner, I beg to differ. All right, um, go ahead. Um, but you don't I, know yet. But I do think that... Um, like being able to control um, how many children you have is a very important part of a woman's life. And if that's like just not something that you get to choose, that makes it incredibly difficult to be anything but a mother and a wife. Yeah. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about animation being used for documentary and, and autobiography and memoir films. What freedom do you have with animation um, that you don't with live action? I mean, animation is probably, I mean, mo most constrained medium because it's just takes so much time to do it. And that's really killing me. And it, it eventually will cripple me because, you know, sitting in a chair for hours and hours is not really healthy. There's nothing glamorous about being an animator. And then, yeah, you can recognize an animator by how we are hunched over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I love one of the lines from one of your interviews where it's like, when you're an animator, you can't tell Matt Damon what to do. <laughs> like versus a live action director. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but, but yeah, the, so it's constraining. And then at the same time, it's so freeing because anything that you can imagine can be, can happen, anything. And so it's just, it's perfect medium to do anything. So you don't, you're not constrained by sets or time. You don't have to recreate the time period. You just draw it. You just make it happen. I don't know. Like, you know, Rocks in My Pockets was possible. The way it was told, it's possible only in animation. Only in animation you can tell Second World War in two minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. and, and that was just like overview, you know, of the war. But you would not be able to do that trustfully or tastefully in uh in, in live action film mm -hmm. because it's it, it's more elaborate it's more it's more difficult to do that so for me animation is just the a most amazing medium I would say I see a stellar future in front of animation unfortunately has been hijacked by the children <laughs> I mean meaning not for by children by producers who make children films and it's been uh, promoted and marketed as a medium for children mm -hmm. and all of a sudden when you make something animated that it's for adults it doesn't really quite hit the mainstream audience consciousness quite they're like what animated feature film about depression what <laughs> you know like it just doesn't ha it just doesn't click has that been the reaction i uh, you know there's like the reactions i'd say oh you know my animated feature film a funny film about depression and people say oh yeah children get depressed too <laughs> have any people brought their kids to your movie yes. yeah and uh -huh. i i mean i mean when i'm around right uh -huh. when i'm around i just go to the mother or father it's usually uh -huh. mother who brings and i would put my hand on her arm and i would say are you aware <laughs> that this is not for children and she says mm -hmm. yeah i have a feeling nah. i said well the one time, though, I told the mother and, and she fled. <laughs> <laughs> Have either of you seen Big Hero 6? Yes. Speaking I of know. animated kids' movies? Yeah. yeah. 
I I watched it the other night, and it's interesting to me because it is a kids' movie, but it's also a stealth movie about grieving and loss that has kind of been slipped into a kids' movie, and I was not expecting, and I think you, Ksenia, were not expecting I to was have surprised. yeah to walk into this movie with, with a big goofy robot and have it actually be a movie that maybe opens the door to help your kid talk about loss and death and grief um i actually like i don't know guys about you but i love that film i thought it was very engaging and i was surprised that in the first 10 minutes they went into this dark territory totally and i was like ooh, and i was intrigued and i was i stayed with it and i and then i liked that goofy uh, white <laughs> robot I, I just loved it i love how it moves i love what it does and i loved everything about it i mean at, at, at towards the end it kind of got this action got a little sloppy yeah it's like overwrought yeah. yeah oh yeah is it true though that animation can make these hard subjects easier to stomach and easier to talk about I, yeah i i probably you know i think that uh rocks in my pockets to that regard was pretty successful in uh, people able to watch it and see it in a, in a, with a humor. And also animation gives you a distance because it's not really happening to real people. Um, but you can relate enough so you can laugh and cry, but you don't go too tragic. Although there are some people over, you know, years of two years of screenings that walked out because it was too much for them, you know. But, you know, there is a laugh and cry moment and there is lightness in it. And also it is removed. It's it's just a symbol of a human rather than mm. human itself. So, yes, it is definitely helping to address difficult subjects and in a form that is kind of more digestible. You're right. I actually find that with um, with your film, even with Big Hero 6, I actually wonder if I felt more emotionally connected to the characters and felt even deeper wells of uh, empathy and, you know, just sadness and, and contemplativeness <laughs> about the subjects that were being covered. And I don't know if it had to do with the freedom to tell the story through animation and to sort of take it anywhere. But I really felt so emotionally connected to your film and you know, following, I'm, I wonder if a lot of it has to do with the visual imagery. I mean, one uh, that keeps coming up for me is the uh, Anna's husband going to hug her as she is emotionally slipping away. She turns into a fish and sort of slithers out of his arms. Or there's so many beautiful shots of eyes and what's going on in someone's eyes, which is someone turning away uh, from their family or member even or like putting up a mirror. The demon of like suicide always like floating in the background mm -hmm. which just if if that was in a feature film and there was like a human playing that that would be so cheesy yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> you took the feeling and made it but visual. you know they also uh what i want to say you know like uh that uh when you go to theater right and in one of those not the broadway shows but let's say some of the shows are doing the same like when you are transported like when you know exactly that this is not real there's bare stage and actors just acting and all of a sudden you're transported and you know that you're looking there's no set right to watch there's no reality but you re it becomes real for you mm -hmm. and you feel for it you be and somehow that's magical that's like a theater is amazing at that and i feel the animation is the same it's like it leaves 
just enough for you to fill that gap between the image and your emotion, you know, that you are the one co-creating that space between. And of course, not everybody wants or can or is able to co-create that, but animation is inviting you to be a co-creator of, of the film, you know. I mean, one thing that I, I find really fascinating about you as a person and artist is, so depression, clearly from the film, is a big part of your life, but you're also incredibly productive. Like, you've been making short films since the early 90s, and it seems like you've always been working on something, and including Rocks in My Pockets, which... It's a, it's a form of neurosis. <laughs> it's a form of illness. So is it a way of dealing with depression, or is it all part of the same thing like I think it's a it's a form of illness honestly it's uh, uh, I mean I don't I don't have an explanation because I when you look at it from one angle what I do is obviously is I'm doing everything against the better judgment I am putting I'm risking with everything I'm risking with all my money, all my reputation, I'm risking with my relationships, I barely have any friends, it all is invested in work. For what? It's like, so what, three people could see it? I mean, 10,000 people could see it? Like, what What do I want to achieve? Mm -hmm. Like, what, I want my name on every poster? It's not going to happen. I know it's not going to happen. So what is it, what I want? Like, it's not making any money. It will mm -hmm. never make any money. So what but is it? But it could be transformative for some of the people who see it. Well, the thing is that I have decided, like, I mean, like I was like, like one thing that I like to say is that if you don't have a sense of higher purpose, you would not survive a one day of depression because depression is such a horrible, horrible, painful affliction. So I live through because I have this higher sense of purpose mm -hmm. and the, the, and that is connected. <laughs> with everything I do, which is I do believe that an individual voice, that individual point of view has value and that adds to diversity of the conversation and adds diversity of, of thought. I am a working artist. This is my work in progress. I have to continue to live to complete it. Hollywood mass productions and the mass media and television, everything is geared towards making profit. And they cater to people's worst instincts, you know, and they cater to their worst tastes because that's, that's what the audience wants. You know, they want talking cats and dogs. We give them, <laughs> oh, they want more, give them more. Oh, now they want talking giraffes. We give them talking giraffes, you know. But then there is like, but then there is a part that you want them to think. You want people to still be able, at least one small part of population, you want them to be able to think independently from that brainwash of the mass media. So where is that thought going to live? Where is that independent environment of independent thought? Where is it going to be? So I feel that I, as an artist, have to contribute to that environment. Mm -hmm. And um, and yes, it's a tiny fraction of everything that's being produced in the world. And, I, and, and, and another thing that also makes me work on is supporting other animators, mm -hmm. other creators. I mean, I, I, I cannot say other creators because I have to be, I could be supporting every, everything, everybody, but I support independent animators. I organize the shows mm -hmm. and I 
help you know with advice if i can you know like i yeah. just i reach out i watch other people's work because i feel it's infinitely important it's like it's not just for me it's for the environment it's like if i was making films for me for my well-being it's i'm not well honestly i'm not well i'm really poor i'm constantly in a fright how i'm gonna pay rent right mm -hmm. but when i'm saying i'm making this for the environment, for something that I believe that is going to benefit outside myself, which is this independent way of thinking. And then I am able to say, okay, this is important work. And I believe in it. And I see the change. I like when George W. Bush was elected, right? Re-elected. I become citizen, right? I mm -hmm. said, fuck that. I don't want to be now <laughs> a special ability alien. Yeah. I want to be special ability citizen. <laughs> and so, I said, and then, like, I had, like, three friends who left the country because he was reelected. And I said, no, this country needs people like me mm -hmm. more than ever. And so I said, I'm going to stand my ground. And so I stayed and I started to do a bit of sex, which when it went through Bible Belt, I was, <laughs> I was, I was like, thrilled. Like, it did. Oh, yeah. Yes. And because they have, like, little beacons of hope there, you know, <laughs> and they were showing films. And I was like, this is what we want. We want that environment i won't say eroded but i we want some kind of hope for people who think differently mm -hmm. anyway teat beat is so hopeful i i mean that's one of the reasons that i love it so much um you know it's this it's frank it's open it's sex from a woman's perspective it's all these things that you're like not supposed to talk about um, There's a lot of like, it often starts with anxiety, whether it be about hair or big dicks or whatever. And then there's like a, a nice release um, and like a nice funny resolution and like making peace with whatever point of view you have. Why do you think people find this topic of discussion so shocking in the first place? Like women being honest about sex. Why? Why is that shocking? I think part of it is just tying back into art and how one dimensional a lot of representations of women are and a lot of it is perpetuated by Hollywood and so bringing in independent films that portray women in a multi-dimensional ways is really important. Yeah, I think so too. Like say now go walk out on the street and say movie mm -hmm. and people would associate word the term movie with a male story. Mm -hmm. And then when you say it's a female, they're like, oh, I have hesitation about that because it's not exactly what I mm -hmm. perceive is a movie. You know, it's a marketing thing. But also feature film versus animation. If you say movie, they would assume it's feature with live action portrayal. Yeah. You know, the thing it was funny when you mentioned that it was uh, a memoir, I was like, I, like people had said that before, like biographical, and I, mm -hmm. and I was always taken aback because I never set out to do a memoir. Because why would I do a memoir? I mean, <laughs> I mean, meaning I'm not important enough. I'm not big enough. I just did the story that was on the top of my hat, like meaning of my head. Like it was a story that I. I just wanted to tell. I didn't think it was a memoir, but because it's my voiceover, right? Mm -hmm. It's my voice telling it. And again, the choice was. We did my voiceover because they are so cheap, right? <laughs> and so, yes, when you hear that voiceover, you have, you're just like, you know, it's personal. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's a person putting herself out. 
So then, of course, I waited uncomfortably for a couple of weeks. My hair grew back. And then all of a sudden, uh, my lover pulls another razor blade and he says, let's do it again. I want to shave it off. And I'm like, you know what? You do anything you want, but my hair stays right there on my pussy. Do you want to know what my next project is? I would love to know what your next project is. Please tell us. <laughs> well, um, I was thinking that I made all these films about sex and I made a film about depression and all that. And so in my next project, I want to combine the two, the sex and depression. Killing and so, yourself with sex? No, I just want to make a film about marriage. <laughs> I've been married twice and uh, I feel that uh, it makes me an expert on marriage because if you've been married once you just know one marriage uh -huh. if you've been married eight times it's like obviously you don't know something <laughs> but if you've been married twice you just know enough so this will all be from your personal experience or will you bring in other people as well Well, the thing is like i was thinking you know the i mean i have plenty of my own material there's so many aspects in every marriage it's not just two individuals meeting it's like cultural clashes and gender clashes and then one of my marriages had gender bending you know thing and mm -hmm. so it's just like so much right <laughs> i was thinking it would be interesting to have a project uh where other people tell me in a brief you know like five three minute stories about the marriage and i would illustrate that mm -hmm. marriage i mean not i would rewrite their story mm -hmm. and under my point of view but uh, i i just like i'm like well i have so much on my own material so i'm kind of thorn mm -hmm. right now but it would be interesting to have like a marriage project where like you know 100 people tell mm -hmm. their marriage story i'm interested how people fall in love Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, what is that thing that makes us fall in love? There's so much of the fantasy. They say, well, you fall in love with the person whose pheromones match your pheromones or something like that, like the smell or that. They have to match just enough. I did my research. Yeah, I did my college thesis on it. Um, yeah, I and was obsessed with like the chemical and the physical part of love for and a long time. What did you, what did you, yeah. yeah. Um, well, the pheromones have to overlap just enough um, so that um, your genes are similar, but not like similar, but diverse enough so that you can avoid disease in your offspring. Um, and one of the other key things that I learned that I found really fascinating is that, well, smells tell you if this person is appropriate. But women who took birth control, their senses of smell were blocked. And so they couldn't judge as well if the partner was appropriate or not. I think that uh, love is kind of a bipolar thing. Like you fall in love. Oh, totally. It is it's a lot of the same chemical reactions. Yes, it's yeah. like yeah, you fall, losing your mind. <laughs> yeah, it's losing your mind and you fall in love and then and then you crash, mm -hmm. and then there's reality. You're like forced to be with this complete stranger, yeah. and forced to share your meals <laughs> and a party. I like how much disgust there is in your face as you say, <laughs> "Share your meals." No, Never. I was just on my way here mm -hmm. on the subway. 
I overheard these two guys talking and this guy was telling him about like his relationship with his girlfriend and like saying, well, and then this happened and that happened, you know, and now, you know, the landlord wants to push us out or something. There's like a kind of conflict with the landlord. And then he, they got up and they stood next to me to get off the train. And mm-hmm. he said with such a disgust, he said, mm-hmm. he said, and I have to eat what she likes. <laughs> I can really relate. I mean, I'm lucky that my boyfriend eats the same thing. And actually, he's the only person in the whole universe who likes my cooking. (laughs) True love. Um, Is your boyfriend going to be part of the narrative of this latest film? Or no, because it's not a marriage? Oh, he's not because he's a boyfriend. And also because he's a current relationship. And you don't talk about current relationships (laughs) because you don't want to jinx them. Uh-huh. Right. I was wondering if there's like a privacy issue, and you didn't. No, I'm a pretty private person. I mean, despite everything that you think about <laughs> me, I'm very private. I'm we very know a lot about your sexual history. <laughs> <laughs> Probably more than any other guest that we've had on the show. <laughs> anyway. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. It was so wonderful to talk with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. How can people keep up with your work? Well, um, they can go to rocksinmypocketsmovie.com. They could buy Rocks in My Pockets movie, uh, either as DVD or um, stream, mm-hmm. whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And they can sign up for a newsletter there. And I'm on Twitter, like Signa Animated. I tweet uh, irregularly. A Rocks in My Pockets movie has a Facebook page, and I'm also on Facebook, and I befriend. If you request uh, friendship, I would uh, accept it, but we would have to have friends in common. Mm. Like, at least one. <laughs> I, I, like At some point, I said, okay, I have to make criteria. <laughs> and so I said, okay, if we have at least one or two friends in common, we can be friends. <laughs> I think that's fair. And yeah, and then if you want to email me an email, you can go on rocksinmypocketsmovie.com and there is a way to contact me. Signa, thank you so much. Um, we've had Signa Bauman on Bonnie and Maud today. Uh, you can get in touch with Ksenia and I at bonnieandmaud at gmail.com. We are also on Twitter and Facebook. Bonnie and Maud is our handle for both of those. Um, reach out to us if you have other nonfiction animated films that you'd like to recommend to us. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.